0: Puritan Thomas Watson said that the devil baits his hook with religion. The devil baits his hook with religion. The enemy will use religion to distract people from the Lord Jesus Christ and his claims. And that's precisely what had happened with the Jewish leadership in the first century. We're still in the Gospel of Matthew. If you're a guest with us, we just walk verse by verse. Uh, To be honest with you, chapters like this, I would probably skip if it were only up to me, but we're committed to God's Word and the whole council, and we have a hard passage this week, and we really have a hard passage for a little while now. These are challenging verses. We are in these woes from Jesus. Last week, we covered the first four. These woes, these curses, this is the sermon of woes, and Jesus pulls no punches in this chapter. J.C. Ryle says it shows, Jesus' firmness here shows how utterly abominable the spirit of the scribes and Pharisees is in God's sight, in whatever form it may be found. And so we are here in the deep end, and we've got to do a lot of Bible study in these verses and in chapter 24 to get at what we need to get here. And here in chapter 23, we have the Jewish king, the Messiah, the Christ, the Jewish king's final break. With Judaism. Here it is all coming to a head. Last week we considered the first four of the seven woes, and this week we're going to consider the final three woes that Jesus gives. We have woe to the hypocrites, woe to the prophet killers, and woe to the unrepentant. And so look with me at Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Woe to the hypocrites. The Lord Jesus Christ says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee first, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean." Sadly, the Jewish leadership had become hypocrites. Again, that word comes from the theater. It's it's these actors that put on masks and they perform for people. They're phonies. They're fakes. They're not the real deal. And they had become consumed with purity and ritual purity and avoiding uncleanness and adding steps so that they might avoid uncleanness. And so lots of laws about cleanness. And so they want to clean the outside of the cup, but they don't clean the inside of the cup where it really matters. It looks good externally, but... Internally, it's still dirty. Inside, Jesus says they're full of greed and they're full of self-indulgence. They're only in this religious game for their own power, their own wealth, self-centeredness, self-indulgence. The word means a lack of self-control or it can be translated weakness of will. Look at verse 27, 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. About this time, remember, it's Passover, right? This is all one week and Jesus is in the temple. So at this time at Passover, what the people would do outside of Jerusalem is they would whitewash all the tombs. They would want to make them very visible to people coming in because, again, according to the law, if you were anywhere near a dead body, you'd be unclean. So as all these Jewish people are coming back into the city, they wanted to make sure that they could see the tombs lest they accidentally step on a tomb or touch a tomb and be unclean. It would really ruin the entire Passover plan. And so this was what they would do. They would clean them up. So as you're walking in, you would see all these beautiful stones. And Jesus says, that's what the Jewish leadership has become. They look good on the outside. They keep up appearances, but beneath the surface, it's decaying corpses. It's putrid. It's unclean. See, their purity was just partial. Seemingly pure, seemingly obedient externally, but impure on the inside. Jesus does that all the time. He has these external and internal contrasts. And what Jesus wants us to know is that the external's not enough. It's got to be both. In fact, flip back, we've seen this multiple times. as many ways, as is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. We looked at that last week. But look back a couple chapters at Matthew 15. Jesus says, you look fine on the outside, but inside, you're unclean. Matthew 15, we'll pick up at verse 7. Jesus has a similar message. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah the prophet, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. That's what they were very much worried about. It's not what goes in the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. The problem's not external, it's internal. Verse 12, then the disciples came and said to them, do you know what the Pharisees, that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he said, Every plant that my fa- heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, and murder, and adultery, and sexual immorality, and theft, and false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. See, what happened is they were externally okay, but internally not okay. What they needed was a new inside, a new internal. What they needed was a new heart. New hearts must come first. Jesus says, first clean the inside that the outside may also be clean. And listen, friends, only the Spirit of God can do that. And the Spirit of God had not yet been poured out. That would come at Pentecost. What they needed was the new covenants. Jesus brings a new and better covenant. That's what Matthew in many ways is all about. In many ways, if you wanted to summarize the Gospel of Matthew, you could say the Gospel of Matthew is about the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. In other words, the kingdom. That's why John the Baptist and Jesus become, come preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand, and that's where this is going. Flip over just a couple chapters of Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. We have the institution of the Lord's Supper here shortly. And Jesus, what does he say about it? Drink of it. Verse 28 For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the Pharisees didn't have new hearts. That's what they needed. They needed the new covenant. And again, what are the two fundamental gifts of the new covenant? Full and final forgiveness of sins, no more sacrifices. And secondly, New hearts, the gift of the Spirit, changed from the inside out. And Jesus says, look, man, you pretend to be holy, but you're blind fakes. You're greedy. You lack self-control. You're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Ouch. These men were the most serious about the law you could find. But Jesus said, no, actually, you're lawless. Now, it's easy for us to point fingers at the Pharisees, but I wonder, friend, do you fit at all in Jesus' indictment here? There's a lot of that in Abilene, Texas, a lot of that in the South. What the Apostle Paul would describe as having the appearance of godliness but denying its power 2 Timothy 3 5. A lot of people come to church, at least, you know, most Sundays, dress up, we give, give a little bit. We serve maybe some when it's convenient for me. You do some things, but your heart is far from God. You only think about God about an hour a week. And he doesn't really enter your picture other than on a Sunday morning. That would be a heart that's far from God. God has no bearing in the vast majority of your thinking and your living. And so you may say, Yeah, I'm a Christian, but your private life has nothing to do with the Lord. Your heart has nothing to do with the Lord. I would just ask you, Is that you? How's your inward life? Is the Lord involved? Does Jesus have your heart as well as a few external actions? Or inside, are you filled with bitterness? Do you lack self control? Do you refuse to forgive? You hold grudges. You enjoy gossip, slander, causing division. Are you harboring a secret addiction to pornography that needs to be brought into the light and fought with everything you have? Dear friend, do you have a heart for the Lord? I'm not asking that you do some religious things. I'm really glad you do because you're here to hear that the Lord wants more than that from you. He wants your all. He wants your external and he wants your internal. Do you have a heart for the Lord? That's a different question from are you religious or do you, religious, do you do religious things on occasion? The scribes and the Pharisees did a lot. And Jesus is not against doing, but he's against doing things outwardly when you don't have a heart that aligns with your action. The solution that they should have done that you still can is repentance. Turning from your own way and turning to his way. Full surrender to a good and sovereign king. Jesus demands the outward and the inward. Woe to the hypocrites. Secondly, woe to the prophet killers. Look at Matthew 23, verse 29. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. Jesus says, You're no better than your fathers who murdered the prophets. Let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 7. If you remember... A little while ago when Jesus enters the temple for the first time and he cleans it out, he quotes from Jeremiah 7. It's a, it's a temple sermon. So Jesus is in the temple now denouncing it. Jeremiah had already done that. That's why Jesus in many ways is a new Jeremiah. And listen to what Jeremiah had said in Jeremiah 7 verse 24. I think we have these, a couple of these on the screen. Jeremiah says, but they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, to this day I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath no different now than it was in the day of Jeremiah, Jesus says. God's patience has now run out with this generation. They build the tombs of the righteous. They are sadly now at odds with God and at odds with God's purposes. Listen to the way Stephen put it in his sermon, his final sermon, right before he's martyred in the book of Acts. He says to his fellow Jewish people, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. They say they're better, but they're not. Like fathers, like sons. Jerusalem, sadly, had become the graveyard of the prophets. Jerusalem had sadly become a bloodthirsty city. This is not a case of mission drift. You know, sometimes we have mission drift, mission creep. I think about the YMCA. It used to be the Young Men's Christian Association. A little mission drift over the years with the YMCA. This is an example of that. This is mission reversal. They're murdering the very ones they are to receive and follow. And their mission had sadly been reversed long before now. God had been so patient. Listen to the very last book of the Hebrew Scripture, Second Chronicles 36, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hands. It's the same story. Back then, God raised up a pagan nation, the Chaldeans, to come and discipline his people. Jesus is going to say in the next chapter. He's going to raise up another pagan nation, the Roman army, to come in and destroy the city. He had sent messenger after messenger. Do you notice that language he said in chapter 23, verse 32? Jesus said, fill up the measure of your fathers. It's sort of an interesting phrase, but it actually has a lot of biblical background. Let me just read a few passages. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Here it is. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There was this certain amount of iniquity that God was willing to tolerate. But then they would fill up their measure, and God would judge. Back then in Genesis, God would dispossess the Amorites for their sin, but not until they had filled up the measure. Again, God is so patient, but his patience eventually runs out. As the old saying goes, the millstones of God's justice grind slowly, but they grind very fine. And so here they are, they're filling up the cup. The Old Testament often spoke of the cup of God's wrath. Over and over, right from the start, Israel would rebel and slowly fill up the cup of God's wrath. Daniel 8.23 speaks of transgressors reaching their limit. Daniel 9.24 is a prophecy about the coming of Christ and God decrees 70 weeks to finish the transgression. After the Old Testament was written, there was a Jewish document called Second Maccabees and it says something similar as well. It says this, With other nations, the Lord patiently delays punishment until they fill up the measure, the full measure of their sins. There's a measure of rebellion which remains to be completed. And Jesus is saying it's happening now on this generation. Jesus says, cap off your father's long history of murdering those sent by God. And they will do that when they crucify their Messiah. Again, he had said this. He's been saying this for three chapters now in parable form. Look back at chapter 21, verse 19 of Matthew. He's spoken about this coming end, and he's spoken about his patience. But look at 21:19 with the fig tree, which is Israel. Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. He curses it. Look over at the parable in Matthew chapter 21, verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants, the prophets, the apostles, the wise men, to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And notice his patience. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir of the come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants, which is Israel? They said to him, he will put those, they answer their own, they they prophesy their own fate here. They say, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He's been saying the same thing. Again and again and again, his patience has now run out. He has sent prophet after prophet, and they built their tombs and decorated the monuments. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians with me. To the right, several books, a little small book there. After Colossians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's pick up at verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 2.14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to, here it is, fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. I think the ESV gets it wrong here, but they get it right in their footnote. Wrath has come upon them forever. The word is ice telos, completely. The New American Standard says wrath has come upon them fully. The King James Version says wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. They will fill up the measure of the cup of God's wrath. I just say, friends, if you are not a Christian, you need to hear this. God is patient. He's so patient. Thank God for first and second and third and fourth. I snubbed the Lord year after year after year for years, and I'm so thankful that his patience didn't run out. You need to hear this. God is long suffering, but there is a time when his patience will run out. He has sent messenger after messenger. I wonder if has he sent messenger after messenger to you? He sent one today. Will you hear his voice this time? Will you stop running from him and submit to him? He's given many opportunities, but at some point he stops, and after that, it's only judgment. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus calls them snakes. He calls them serpents. He calls them a brood of vipers. You remember Genesis three fifteen, the antithesis that God's going to send an offspring of the woman who will crush the offspring of the serpent and that there will be this perpetual hostility right from the beginning between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Tragically, the Jewish leaders have now taken the side of the offspring of the serpent. They're seeking to oppose the offspring of the woman. They've become serpents. That's what Jesus calls them in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. They've taken the wrong side. They're opposing their king, showing they are of the enemy. And do you remember Matthew chapter 3? It's been a little while. That was John the Baptist's message. Flip back there with me, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. This is how the gospel started. He's given them message after message, warning after warning. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus, when he saw John, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Exact same language Jesus used. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The message was the same right from the start. The Jewish leadership is corrupt. Don't trust in your Jewish heritage. That will mean nothing in the new covenant. It's all now about Christ. Look to Christ. Trust to Christ. Judgment is coming, and the only way to escape is to believe the gospel and repent. And Jesus started by sending John, and he sends more and more. He's, we've seen him send several in the gospel of Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 10. He had already sent them, and he would continue to send them all throughout the book of Acts. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Again, we're talking about Jewish unbelievers. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Flip over several chapters in Matthew chapter 20. Verse 18, Jesus had sent people out to them. And what did they do? They opposed them. Matthew 20, verse 18. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. He had sent prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger, and he himself came. And shockingly, Jesus says, All the righteous blood shed on earth will be on them. From the blood of Abel, he says, to the blood of Zechariah. What does that mean? Well, for us, that would be like saying from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the ends. Our Bible, our Old Testament Bible, it's actually not structured. Chronologically, it's structured logically. We, we lump them together by uh, prophets and history and that sort of thing. But Jesus' Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures of the first century, they were ordered chronologically. Think about the Tanakh, right? The Torah goes at the ends there on writing, ketavim. It ends with writings and it ends with the very last writing, which is the book of Chronicles. We have divided it up into two books, but in theirs, it was just one. And so Jesus' Bible ends with Chronicles. And so what is Jesus saying? Well, he says, from the blood of righteous Abel, Genesis, to the blood of Zechariah the prophet, 2 Chronicles 24. What's he saying? From the very beginning to the very end, you've murdered my people. In Genesis 4, when Abel's murdered, martyred, the Lord says that his blood is crying out to him from the grounds. From the very first martyr, the blood cries out for justice. And then in 2 Chronicles... With the death of Zechariah, Joash the king says, may the Lord see and avenge. Their martyrdom will require retribution. Their blood will be accounted for. And Jesus says this generation will do the accounting. But why are they, why is this generation, why are they responsible for all the righteous blood shed on earth? Well, they're more culpable, for one, because the cup is now full, but also because God came in the flesh. Unlike previous prophets, they saw God in the flesh. They listened to the authoritative teaching of the son of David himself. They witnessed miracle after miracle, and yet they still demanded more. It wasn't enough. We want signs. And ultimately, they took the side of the Romans and crucified their king. The righteous blood will be upon them. And tragically, that's what they themselves ask for. Look at Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27 verse 24. Some of the saddest words in the entire gospel. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, Pilate... Rather a, rather, a riot was beginning. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be upon us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus says, here in verse 36, all this will come upon this generation. When the word generation is used in Matthew, every time it's talking about his contemporaries. This generation that Jesus is speaking to will fill up the cup of God's wrath. The wrath to come that John the Baptist warned about in chapter 3 is about to be released as God sends the Roman army to destroy their temple. The axe was laid and it's about to drop. Whoa, whoa to the prophet killers. And third, woe to the unrepentant. Look at Matthew 23:37. Jesus says, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate." For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Jesus' last public appeal. This is his final warning. Jesus rebukes. But notice, he rebukes with with tears in his eyes. This rebuke is out of love. And this is the proper posture towards unrepentant people. It's brokenness. This double Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's a loving lament. It shows his compassionate love for them, his desire for them to repent. Just like with Acts. Remember what he said? Saul, Saul. What does he say? Martha, Martha. He's broken. I just wonder, do you share this burden for lost people? Does your heart break for the brokenness, for the lostness of your family and your friends and your neighbors? This is where it's got to start. An evangelistic church starts with people that are broken for the lost. God, make it happen among us. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. God had been so patient with Israel. He had sent prophets and wise men and apostles over and over, and he had warned them repeatedly, but they were not willing. John chapter 5, verse 40, Jesus says to the Jewish people, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Again, it's the same thing that Stephen said. Stephen's final sermon before his people, his countrymen, the Jewish people, picked up rocks and threw them at his head until he died. What did he say? He said, "You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you." So tragically, Jerusalem is lost. She's become a harlot, the harlot, Babylon, the city that stones the prophets. They stoned Zechariah, they stoned Jeremiah, they stoned Stephen. And Jesus says then, your house is left to you desolate. When Jesus says your house, he's talking about the temple, which the next chapter is going to be all about. Look ahead at chapter 24, verse 1. Really a bad chapter break. Jesus left the temple, he'd been there the entire time, and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The temple would be destroyed within a generation. The temple is now desolate. Jesus came in, he entered the temple, he cleaned it out, which is this enacted parable of judgment. It's become a den of robbers. Rather than a house of prayer, and it's no longer God's house, it's their house. He says, your house is left to you desolate, and Jesus leaves. Just like God left in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 10 and 11, and he never returns. This was the warning of Old Testament prophet after Old Testament prophet after Old Testament prophet. Covenant breakers would have their temple and their city destroyed. I just want to read a few of them. Again, this is the warp and woof of the prophets. Let me just read several, starting back with the covenant. If they did not keep the covenant, this was the warning. This is the curses for disobedience. Way back in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 31, the curses of the covenant. And listen. I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. God had warned them. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 9. Verse six, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. That's the temple. And Israel become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins, not a stone left upon another. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they'll say, Why has the Lord done this? To this land and to this house, and they'll say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. I read from Jeremiah's temple sermon. Let me read a couple other verses Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 2. Stand in the gate, he's right here, of the Lord's house, the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Verse 11 says, has this house, this temple, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, where the tabernacle temple was at first. And see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh, destroy it. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Verse 20 of Jeremiah's temple sermon. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Verse 25 of Jeremiah 7. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day. I've persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Micah warned the same. Chapter 3, verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe its priests, teach for a price, they become greedy. It's prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No, no disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Warning after warning after warning by prophet after prophet after prophet. We have sent. The messengers of God, we have sent the messenger of God. And you have not heeded, therefore your temple and your city will be destroyed. Our Bibles end with Malachi. And what's the last few chapters of Malachi? Say, behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, the Lord says. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But... Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. John the Baptist is that messenger that the Lord sent. Jesus is God returning to his temple, and it's not a pleasant coming. Why? Because it's a coming in judgments and purification. God had warned his people, Israel, repeatedly that if they don't repent, he'll destroy their temple and their city. It's the main message of the prophets. And now is the end of God's patience. Their cup is filling up. This will be the end of Old Covenant Israel, which has been again the theme for the last three chapters. Just to remind you, look back at 2119. What does he say about the fig tree? May no fruit ever come from you again, 2119, 2143. I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to a people who produce its fruits. Chapter 22, verse 7 in the other parable, the king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. He said the same thing several different ways. And then he ends our chapter by quoting Psalm 118 again. This is how it started in, Psalm, in uh, Matthew 21, 9 as he comes into the temple. Not the leaders in Jerusalem, but the people outside. They Cite this Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was one of the Passover Psalms. It was sung every year at Passover, but his coming is going to be in judgment. And he tells his audience, you will not see me until you acknowledge me for who I truly am. Judgment is coming, but anytime judgment is promised in the scripture, it's followed by salvation. It's never the last word because that's the kind of God that he is. And he uses a vivid illustration here in verse 37. Matthew 23, 37. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you weren't willing. That that mother instinct to protect their young is remarkable, isn't it? And it even goes to the animal kingdom. And so if there was a threat or a fire, hens would, would gather her chicks underneath her and under her wings. And there are recorded instances Or people have come after a fire and they found a burnt mother hen with live chicks underneath her. And Jesus is here. He's warning about a specific local judgment. But that's just a precursor. There is a final judgment coming. God's wrath is coming for all sinners. Except for sinners who trust in Jesus Christ. Except for those whom Christ protects except for those whom Christ has offered himself as a sacrifice, a propitiation, a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. He gathers us under his protection, and he bears the penalty that we deserve. If we'll but trust him. Repent and believe. Turn from your way, turn to his way, and you'll be saved from the wrath. If you reject the invitation of Jesus, he may not invite again. He may just let you go to where you're no longer interested. That's really the way it works. It's a hardening. He lets us go our own way. But here you are under his word ultimately asking you don't reject his invitation. If you reject it, it will lead ultimately to disaster and destruction. But he invites, indeed he commands All people everywhere to repent and trust in him, to submit to him. And he promises this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out.